Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Aaron Basco, who's the Associate Vice President of Enrollment Services, about his new article, Have We Gotten Student Success Completely Backward? Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks, Christina. I appreciate being here. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about this important topic of student success and the findings from your article. But before we jump into that, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Of course. Um, So I am a longtime higher education uh, professional. I've worked at uh, five different institutions all around the areas of enrollment management, uh, which includes admissions to the college or university, financial aid, um, student success, and even career services. So um, I love working in higher education. I've really enjoyed the students that I've been able to help along the way and uh, the professionals that I've been able to help develop. And uh, this is a topic that's very close to my heart as it uh, touches on helping students find a pathway uh, to future success. One of the things I like to ask guests is about their own path through higher ed. Can you take us back to when you were choosing college and what what decisions were factoring in for you and how that turned out? Absolutely. Um, actually, it, it I think makes a good story because it tells you a little bit about how I ended up doing the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, I was, I'm originally from Maine and I wanted to go away to um, college somewhere because all my friends were going to the Boston area. So I was looking at uh, international programs in like the greater Virginia area, probably or around DC, but I had a really great um, admissions counselor that I worked with. He was um, actually from an international background. He was British and he called me one day on the phone and said, Hey, I, you know, I see you're a good student. I'd like to meet with you at your high school. And um, that really started me on a path where I interviewed with the particular college that I went to, which was uh, West Virginia Wesleyan, and um, you know went down there and felt like they really treated me well and really wanted me to be there. And so um, that's where I ended up going for my undergraduate. And then I went on and got a uh, graduate degree at the University of Illinois in uh, Latin American history of um, all interesting things. Um, and that really led me kind of full circle because when I came out of my graduate program, I actually reached back out to the person who had been my admissions counselor and said, um, I'm thinking about staying in higher education. Any suggestions? And he said, you should absolutely do admissions. I think you would be amazing at that. So uh, that's what really got me started in this field is um, kind of helping other students the way that that uh, he helped me to figure out which direction I wanted to go and try to make a good match of an institution. And that is really sort of the underpinning of the article that we're going to talk about is what really makes that kind of strong impression on a student that lasts. Um, And you were part of what you called a retention think tank. Can you tell us why colleges have things like that and why they mine student data and what they're looking for? Absolutely. Um, So I think colleges have been trying for the last couple of decades to really get their arms around the retention problem. Um, The the numbers are not great, um, especially for graduation rates um, nationally. And I think colleges and universities really struggle with what could they be doing to make some kind of a difference um, in those numbers to help students be successful. They, I think they deeply want their students to um, have a great experience and to stay and to get a successful outcome. Uh, But there's so many factors and there's so much complexity that can happen to a student during their time period that um, 
I think they, they're constantly searching for new ways to make a difference in that. And when I was at um, Salisbury University um, over on the eastern shore of Maryland, um, one of the ways we approached that, I, I was kind of handed retention uh, with no budget and no staff and just said, you know, what can we do in this area? So um, I reached out to some of my colleagues that were at a sort of upper mid-level um, at the university and said, look, I know you all care about retention. Uh, we don't really have any kind of formal mandate, but let's get together and see what we can and think through and come up with for creative solutions. And I said, we'll be the, the think tank will be the kind of uh, unofficial um, branch of retention um, at the university and see what we can get done. And that uh, was really a great model. We focused on two things, really uh, trying to give students appropriate nudges uh, for good things that they could do to kind of increase their success rate, and then looking to see how we could remove barriers um, from in front of them that might uh, get them off track or cause bumps in their um, experience with us. So that's really where a lot of my learning about student success started was just from this um, really organic interplay of professionals in all different areas of the university, trying to kind of bring our best ideas together and and see what we could make happen. And one way of looking at student retention is to ask people why they leave. And when you were asking people why they left, you kept getting the same sorts of answers. We want to talk about that focus on why did they leave? Yeah, th- that was the most frustrating part to me, I think, about working with that the retention think tank is we would do surveys of students, we would ask students, and it was never like one thing that was broken, right? It was always this diffused sense of, you know, some students, you know, have personal issues that they come up with that that change in their lives. Some students have financial pieces that get them off track. Other students academically just aren't successful. Other students socially don't integrate. And it was like, we could never really pin down like, how to control that factor. We would say, okay, well, maybe it's an academic thing and we need to kind of engage them more in this way. But that left out, you know, maybe three quarters of the students who had a different problem. So we would kind of run over in this direction and say, okay, we need to work on financial aid and fixing those pieces and come up with, you know, retention, additional aid scholarships or something like that. But that would leave out this other group that, you know, had personal issues or were um, maybe homesick. And, you know, so I think that was the big challenge was to say there's so many factors here that it seems like it's impossible to control all the bad things that could happen to a student while they're in college. And as much as we you know, try to mitigate those pieces, um, you just couldn't wrap your arms around all the possibilities of where the train could go off the track. And so I think that's what really started me thinking about, OK, maybe there's a different way to approach this. Maybe we're looking at this a little bit backwards. If it's impossible to control all the factors, is there, are, are we looking at this in the wrong way? Um, and that's really what started to intrigue me about, about looking at those success factors and, um, you know, a lot of the research that um, Gallup and the Gallup Purdue index had done on uh, the big six for student success. Um, and the big six were these um, practices that Gallup and Purdue did all this research on to say, these are the factors that if students have these experiences while they are in the college setting, they're much more likely to be successful as they graduate, engaged with their jobs, healthy, um, you know, really feel motivated and feel um, like they've made good choices. And I thought, gee, I wonder if those would extend back into their college experience itself. And you talk about the big six in your article. And when I was reading the big six, it seemed like common sense that, of course, these would be the things that matter to students. Um, 
One of them was faculty who care about the students and who care about learning. Another was students getting involved in a project or internship where they can really apply what they've been learning. And for this project to last for a good chunk of time rather than go from one month internship to one week of shadowing a person, but to do something for a chunk and really apply it. Another was having a mentor. Another was being involved in an extracurricular that was meaningful to them. How did Gallup and, and the, the people who compiled this data, how did they determine this was the big six? Did they just go to students and say, what makes you care about staying? They actually talked mostly with alumni um, and asked them about, number one, their satisfaction with the results of their um, college experience and their satisfaction where they were at in their lives in terms of you know advancement, career, uh, family, community involvement. And then they asked them to look back on their college experience and say, you know, what was it that was, you know, so helpful to you? What was meaningful? What, um, you know, what helped to get you through or you think has contributed the most to your success? Um, and you're right. A lot of the things seem very logical, right? That there's no surprise that it would matter that if you had faculty who cared about something or that you, you know, you engaged and involved students in something that was meaningful to them. And I think this is, um, you know, the the exciting thing for me is that this is, research that's available to everyone. And it's not that um, complex and complicated. I think we have sometimes become so technocratic in our approach to the way that we work with students, right? We're looking for markers and we're trying to turn them into data points and we are looking for flags and, um, you know, trying to crunch uh, historical information in order to make predictions, which I'm not against. I think that's all wonderful. But, um, you know, sometimes there there is elegant simplicity in ways of doing things that are often the best ways of doing things. And to look at this, you know, very publicly available data that I don't think many universities have really taken full advantage of, um, that just really spoke to me. And I um, I worked with a couple of professionals, especially in the career services area, and that gave me a, I think, unique um approach and look at how this was impacting students, taking it back from, okay, you've graduated and you've had this successful experience, but saying, wait a minute, those students are starting to have those experiences while they're with us in college or university. And how can we make sure that those students have that? I mean, Gallup came back and said something like 3% of students had all six of those experiences while they were in college. And I thought, well, that's terrible. Um, you know, 97% of our students are not getting what they need to have the most you know, successful life possible. And yet I think many colleges and universities, we just weren't grappling with this publicly available free information that um, presented it in such a simple way. When you take the campus tour, they point to the bells and whistles. You know, our student athletic center was updated two years ago, and the dorms all have new kitchens, and they they really sell you on basically real estate type ideas um, that you'll be physically comfortable. Um, but the big six doesn't list any of those. They doesn't list being in a beautiful city or having an incredibly new campus or having the best uh, technology available. It's really people focused ideas. It is. And it was interesting because once we looked at that information, um, we changed the way we did our um, open house program um, at the time. I had our um, director of career services um, get up and do a presentation as part of uh, the main open house presentation, which is very unusual. And he basically got up there and said, um, who wants to be successful in life? 
Um, and then he asked the parents, like, how many of you want your, your student to be successful in life? And of course, everybody raises their hand. And he said, here's a whole bunch of research that says what your student needs to do over the next four years in order to be successful in life. And he listed the big six and he talked to people about it. And he said, this is what you need to look for no matter where you go. Even if you don't choose to come and study here, wherever you study, you should be looking for whether or not that institution can provide these types of activities. So it became very intentional um, for us to say this is what you know you need, and um, and this is what you should be looking for. So that is very unusual. I mean, the you know facilities are great and they are important, and but um, I think as I talk with students now, and uh, you know I, I work for the University of Lynchburg, and we definitely put in our materials to students and our discussions with students. Look, these are the kinds of things that are going to make the most difference in your life. I often will tell students, you know. Classroom information is important, but this, but going to college is not about transfer of content. It's about the types of experiences that you have there, the types of mentorship that you can receive, the types of relationships that you build in and between classes that um, really will propel you the furthest and make the most difference in your life. The big six, they, you mentioned only 3% of students will get all of the big six, but shockingly, something only like 25% get two or three of them. When you look back on your own college experience, how, what percentage do you fall into? Did you, were you in the 3%? Were you in the 25%? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think I was on the uh, probably upper end of it. I don't know that I got all six, but I probably got four uh, out of those. Um, I had, um, and in some ways, the most important ones, too, for me, where um, I definitely had faculty who were mentors to me and got me involved in things and had me do specialized projects. I was able to do some uh, research work with some faculty while I was there in independent study. Uh, I did some study abroad and I was able to get involved in things that were sort of, you know, consistent clubs and uh, organizations. I was part of the honors program where I was. So I, I had my people, I guess you could say both, um, both my contemporaries, my peers, but also um, people who were ahead of me on the path of life. And I think to me, you know, it can be hard to keep in mind, maybe, you know, even though it's only six things, maybe to say, oh, okay, well, what differentiates those six or am I getting those six? So as I have progressed in my own sort of professional work, I've really narrowed it down to in some ways condensing those six into really two things. And that came from a conversation um, here at, uh, at the university where um, I spoke with our um, vice president of um, student uh, development who really was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, when I read the big six, I see basically two things. You need to have somebody who's got your back and something that you um, believe in and participate in um, that you're pushing forward into. And I thought, wow, what a great way to, to think about that, right? To just, because it's easy to keep those two things in your mind is you can easily say, okay, who at the institution has my back? Is it a faculty member? Is it a staff member? Is it, um, you know, a group of students or somebody that I could go to when, when something inevitably goes wrong? because it will go wrong for every student. I think that's one of the challenges to think about. We all have this you know, perfect picture as students go on into college or university where it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to get there. It's going to be ideal. It's going to be perfect. I'm going to be just as successful as I have been. You know, My life is going to remain about what it is now. Um, but over four years, something unexpected is going to happen, whether that's a challenge at home, whether that's a challenge with your schoolwork or financially or whatever it is. You, you 
probably not going to get through four years without some kind of a curveball. And the question is, do you have the resiliency to deal with that? Not can you avoid it, but do you have somebody that you can go to when that curveball hits you and say, hey, this is new for me. I, you know, What do I do with this? Can you give me some life advice? Um, I think that's probably the first piece that's so important. And then the second is to have something to you know, focus your attention on, right? So to say, um, okay, this area of my life right now is a little bit challenging, but I have this thing that I'm excited about and hopeful for. That's you know, maybe the internship that I'm doing. That's the club or activity or sport that I'm involved in. Um, you know, I think about, um, I referenced this in the article, but when my my um, son went off to college. His first year, um, you know, was the COVID year, right? The year that everybody was trying to figure out how to go back. And um, there were not a lot of opportunities for connection. And, you know, part of what saved him was intramural volleyball, which he had never played before, but it was just something that he could identify with and could be a consistent positive for him in his experience. And so going back to those two things and saying, you know, who has my back and what do I have to look forward to and where do I belong? Those, those are a, a huge in student success. And it seems like it's something that students can, can and do clearly articulate. That I know when I was an adjunct professor, I would have students say that to me. They'd say, you really care whether I'm learning this or not. You really care whether I show up or not. And I'm, yes, you are part of this class. We need you here. Um, and they said that's not common across all professors. We, don't, we can't expect that. Um, and if someone couldn't turn something in, I would circle back and say, Hey, it's not like you, you know, what's going on? How do we, how do we help you get back on track? So that was one thing they expressed to me, like Dr. Gessler, I feel like you have my back. And I thought, well, of course. Um, and yet students really need to know that clearly in some way that you demonstrate it for it because they don't expect that. And that made me kind of sad. I agree. I think, um, you know, we've gotten away from the classic um, way that people see themselves in higher education. We've come become a very complex, um, you know, complex organizations, large organizations. Uh, we've become a system, you know, again, I, I use the word sort of technocratic sometimes. And we've missed out on the fact that, you know, what really is the key to, to student success and probably historically has always been is that, you know, rubbing shoulders with um, someone who is an expert in the field, who you respect, but who also seems to take a personal interest in you, right? And you think about of all the complex systems that we can come up with for retention and student success, you know, if, if every faculty member just reached out and mentored a handful of students, um, which is probably how it was done in the old days, right? But that would make a huge difference in terms of the, the retention of those students, right? And in, in some ways, I think that's what I'm really encouraging um, universities to do is to say, this is, this is how to get everybody involved in the retention and success process, right? Is to have your, your staff members who, you know, you normally would not think of as, uh, you know, people who are in the student success business, right? Have them reach out. We have a wonderful um, oper our example here. Um, we have one of our um, custodial um, staff who just is amazing and she's so friendly and she adopts basically students in one of the residence halls that she works with. And I have had students say, the reason that I stayed was because this lady encouraged me and she checked in with me. And, you know, I've heard people say the same thing about people who, you know, check you in in the lunch line, who they greet you every day and they 
make sure they ask questions about how you're doing and make sure you're okay. And what a simple but wonderful way for colleges and universities to make the difference in their student success numbers is just to encourage every person on campus that they have a role in student success and retention. And that role is just to care and just to ask questions and to make sure that every student feels like somebody has their back on campus, whoever they are and whatever role they're in. It seems like that same model would apply to faculty and staff as well, how we keep them in their jobs, why they stay, because they know they're doing something meaningful because someone on campus has their back. It seems like those that model applies on both ends. I agree. Um, I think... I've definitely seen that. I mean, um, a lot of the work that I do, um, you know, people often don't know what enrollment management is or, or uh, what it includes. But a lot of the work that I do, I hire a lot of young professionals who are working the admissions staff or financial aid staff or those kinds of things. And for me, I've always seen it as a, a deep part of my mission and my purpose in the work that I do is to mentor those um, young professionals. Everything from, you know, tour guides who work for us, who I, I still keep in touch and uh, on LinkedIn with some of the tour guides that I, you know, mentored years ago, decades ago at this point, um, and young young professionals and their first job, or you know, just just folks who maybe have not had a very good um, professional experience up to this point, you know, looking for ways to reach out to them and say, hey, you matter to me, right? Like I'm excited about your future and the things that you can accomplish and that you can achieve. I want to see what you can do. Um, and to then encourage them to get involved in some way in their own professional development that helps them look forward to the future and says, you know, maybe you've been stuck doing the same thing for a long time, but I'd like to see you take on this new challenge, right? Or take on this new role or get engaged in a different kind of way. You know, maybe it's not just students that need that, right? Maybe this is a sort of universal um, kind of human success thing. I, I don't know. But um, to know that somebody cares enough to ask you the real questions and find out how you're really doing and that you can, you know, go to when you need to process life. And then, you know, something that helps you point towards the future and say, today is not all that there is. In the future, I'm going to continue to grow. I'm going to have opportunities to get better um, and to, you know, make a difference in what I do. I think those are key to at least how many people, um, you know, I think what they hope for in life. It is a huge transition between high school and college, and the skills that you had to use in high school to get you into college don't necessarily translate as well as students are expecting them to. Um, and one of the things we do see is that nationally, about a third of students leave their institution after one year, and 25% leave higher ed altogether. How do the big six and in making that list even smaller, the big two, how do they address that number? Or is that a number we need to accept? About a third of students, because they're choosing while they're still in high school, using all the tools they learned in high school about what they think college will be like and how they will perform, should we accept that about a third are not going to be able to choose the right school for them? They're going to have to go for a year, try it out, learn a lot the hard way, and then transfer somewhere else? Or are we... Are we able to apply the big six and keep more students? I think we can do better. Um, I, I feel like, you know, knowing some of the right questions to ask is important. I often will see that um, 
high school students have made it and been successful in many ways by sort of being perfect, right? For uh, never failing, never getting a bad grade, you know, always looking like they sort of have their act together. And I think when they move on um, into the university setting, that becomes very, very difficult to do. Um, and so that's a lot of where that stress level, uh, you know, really increases for students or they have their first, um, you know, what they would call failure, right? Where they get, you know, their first C on a paper or D on a paper, right? When it comes back and they, they don't know what to do because they have often been only successful where they've been. And so I think we could do a lot to serve students by giving them a more accurate picture of what's expected of them and how they can successfully deal with it. I think talking to students about, um, you know, the concepts that are out there of, you know, grit and resiliency and things like that and saying, look, you're going to run into things that you are not going to do right the first time. You're not going to conquer them immediately. They're going to call on you to, uh, you know, have a response and get back up after being knocked down. And that's okay. That's part of that learning process that you're going to, you know, need to go through. Um, but I think, you know, the other area that we could really help students in is helping them understand better how to, um, that it's okay to advocate for themselves. It's okay for them to ask for help. It's okay for them to, uh, you know, again, fall down and ask for somebody to teach them how to get back up again. I think one of the things that often happens is, you know, um, people avoid asking for help because they feel like that's this um, demonstration that they are not perfect or they're somehow weak or, you know, unable to cope. And I, the university typically has a whole support structure for students that many people don't even utilize, right? Because they feel like, ooh, I'm trying to, you know, keep my head down and avoid working with those, you know, administrator type people, right? Like you and I um, have talked about that. It's, um, it's unfortunate because that's what we are here to do, right? We want to see our students successful. And I think, I think that's part of the struggle is that um, high school students often don't see that, um, you know, administrators in the college setting are motivated to find wonderful students and help them succeed. And if that means, you know, a student that comes and says, boy, I'm, I'm getting really beat up by this class. Can you give me some advice? Or I don't know how to go and talk with a faculty member. I've never done that before in this way. Or, you know, I'm really struggling with, budgeting my time or whatever it is that, you know, there's a whole structure there that's built to help students and they just don't know that. And they don't know that it's okay. In fact, it's better to admit early that you don't know what you're doing, right? You don't need to go and make it look like you've got everything together. Um, instead, go in, be open, um, have that sort of classic learner's mentality. Um, I, I, to give an example of this, I love foreign languages and I've studied a whole bunch of languages. And for me, one of the key principles, I think, with language learning is that the the faster you fail, the faster you learn, right? So one of the things that you do to learn a language quickly is you go out there and you start using it and you make a lot of mistakes. And then you get correction on those mistakes and your brain really responds well to that type of correction. It makes it really quick. You usually only have to make that same mistake twice and then your brain fixes it for you. But if you aren't willing to put yourself out there and make the mistakes, you never actually learn. Um, and so I think that same principle could be applied as students come to college, that if they had the learner's type mentality instead of that perfectionist me mentality where they said, OK, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to get some feedback and I'm going to learn from that feedback and, and take great lessons. And, the, you know, the, again, the faster I fall, the faster I learn um, can really help students, I think, in shifting that mentality. And what you're talking about is 
really hidden curriculum. Students don't come in knowing this. You know, I think what students have learned is a lot of shame-based behaviors mm -hmm. in high school. That if you admit this, then you're not going to stay in the honors program. If you admit that, then you're not going to be promoted to officer of your glee club. That people will take your weaknesses or perceived weaknesses and select you out of something. And in college, in order to really level up and grow and examine more parts of yourself, you have to look at the total part of your being. So do you think part of that is why so many students leave? They spent the first year hiding so many of the things that weren't working for them or that they didn't know how to do. And they self-decided this isn't for me. I can't do this. What a great insight into that. I love your idea of hidden curriculum. And I think um, I think that's very much true. I think a lot of the you know perceived failure or the shift that students make is we're asking them as they move into um, a university setting to make a, a mental transition. And they really haven't been prepared for that transition. They really haven't been told, look, you know, you've been on this sort of conveyor belt where somebody has had your time, you know, totally planned out for you and where you, you know, you take one step and off the, the track and you're, you're done. Right. And we've, you have to shift that mentality and say, no, no, there are a lot of tracks out there. You need to now start to manage your own track, right? Instead of instead of staying on the conveyor belt, that, that belt is under your control now, and you have to decide what kind of person and what kind of learner you're going to become. And I think we haven't really told students that, right? And fortunate is the student who at the high school level has a, um, you know, a, a, a teacher who takes a special interest in them and maybe passes on some of those lessons. Um, but it's not everyone. Instead, we've sort of, I think, you know, kind of societally, again, like you said, made people feel like students feel like they can't fail, like they can't try, they can't reach out there and do something that they're not already good at, or it will you know, damage their image or reduce their chances of getting into a great college or, you know, hurt their future job prospects. And I think, you know, that's a big part of the shift is that, you know, some students are able to stay flexible in their mindset and say, oh, okay, those rules that I thought were the only rules to live by, those don't seem to apply in the same way um, at, in college. And other students really struggle with that. Maybe even the ones that have been most successful at kind of like the high school game, if you want to call it that, um, they've learned those rules so well that when they get to college and they're asked to shift to a different set of rules, it's too difficult for them and they just can't make that mental jump. So whatever we could do to introduce that, and you know, again, that's partly probably at the high school level, and it's partly the way that colleges you know, reach out to students and, and to make sure that we're sending those messages and not telling people just continue that sort of conveyor belt track thinking that you're on, but, you know, we're going to challenge you in new ways. I think we all have a responsibility to that. For some students, they will rightly feel they can't afford to fail a class. Tuition is so expensive and they may have a genuine need to get through college quickly. How do you platform those students? I think, again, you know, to, to see failure maybe in a different light or to ask for um, 
you know, that help earlier. I mean, in those cases, those are the, I think, most necessary for people to reach out early and look for, you know, people that can help you be successful, right? I think, you know, going and speaking early to a faculty member and saying, hey, this is my goal. I am really committed to this. Like, uh, uh, you know, I'm responsible for, you know, what I'm doing. I, I want to have this different kind of future. It can be really important or finding a, an advisor or a mentor that can help you do that. Um, you know, th- I think people respond to you wanting to be successful and taking it seriously. Um, I, I've always found that in my own experience that when I went to a faculty member and I say, said, you know, hey, I didn't do as well on this as I wanted to, teach me what I'm missing. Tell me what it is that I should be focused on or the way that I should change what I'm doing in order to get a better result. Um, and the earlier that you can do that, the better. Um, I think the the challenge is when students try to put that off and they try to pretend like nothing's wrong. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a similar... Um, maybe parallel kind of question, but the focus that we all put on majors is I think sometimes kind of detrimental to students, right? I mean, there's certain majors that, yes, the way the tracks are built, you have to follow a very, um, you know, articulated path for yourself. But I often joke with students that um, if they say, well, I'm, I'm still kind of undecided, I say, well, then be blissfully undecided, like be proudly and intentionally undecided. Because if you are intentionally undecided, you can raise your hand and people will help you. Um, if you try to pretend that, oh, well, I'll just go into you know business or psychology because I don't really know what I want to do, you could get two years into your degree without seriously confronting the fact that you don't know what to do and nobody has known to help you. So I think it's even more important for those students who are very concerned about the financial aspects to ask for help early, to find those mentors early, um, you know, go someplace like, you know, the, the career services center. Those, you know, usually those offices are so excited to have a student who comes to them in the first semester of their freshman year and says, I don't know what I want to do. I don't, you know, can you help me? Um, because so typically students wait until their senior year when they they can't help them very much. Um, so I think that, you know, it is, there definitely are financial concerns to go with that. But I would say that the best way to invest and the best way to protect your investment is to make sure that you are reaching out and asking for help and, you know, understanding the rules of the game and how you can be successful um, in, a, in a different kind of environment than you've been used to. So using your campus as an example, where are some centers students should visit before anything goes bad? Where are some some resources they should just even go poke their head in the door and get a sense that they exist before they are in crisis? Sure. So at the University of Lynchburg, I, I like to tell students that they're kind of our are two types of those places. There are the formal places and there are the informal places. So the formal places are places like our um, Center for Academic Achievement, where you can go and get advising support or tutoring or, you know, different kinds of help with your study skills. Um, You can go to an an academic advisor. You can go, as I said, to the Career Services Center and, you know, get um, someone to help you think through what is your life plan and how can you make an adjustment. And they can help you if you are struggling with, you know, reaching out to a faculty member um, and how to talk with them or how to, you know, engage and ask those kinds of questions. Um, but there also are some great informal places. I will often um, tell students, look, if you're if you're thinking about, uh, you know, some potential majors, but you're not really sure what it is, you know, what it's all about, go and hang out in the, you know, by those office areas, right? Go and talk with the administrative assistants in those departments. They know everything about those departments. They just are not asked very much. And, you know, 
meet those people. Go in and talk with a faculty member, maybe who you're not in their major, but you're just curious about um, their program and see if you can, you know, do go visit them during their office hours. Reach out and find sort of kindred spirits on campus who would be excited about working with you, who can open doors for you and can give you like the real, the great return on investment that is making the most of your, um, your time there. So I would say, you know, do a little networking like that and reach out a little bit and just ask questions. It's amazing how people respond to a young person who says, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I have energy and enthusiasm. Could you please help point me in the right direction? Almost no one will turn you away if you approach things in that, in that way. Um, I think, People in, in higher education, for the most part, got into higher education because they are hungry for those types of positive um, experiences with young people, and they want to mentor and they want to encourage. And I think tapping into those informal networks is really, really important to students. What surprised you in writing this article? Well, I think, you know, this was this article was a bit of a journey of thinking for me. Right. So, um, you know, certainly it started with experiences um, from years ago. And I think what really was the most interesting is the more that I um, drilled down into making this really a focus on those, you know, kind of two of the big six, the more that I saw this could apply to different um, areas of higher education and probably areas of life. So right now I'm working on um, sort of a follow-up article. Uh, one of the things that a lot of uh, colleges and universities struggle with is at this time of the year, um, they often are struggling with melt of students. So students who have committed to coming to the institution um, get cold feet and they back out. Um, And that is really harmful for the student because they miss out on an opportunity. And it's harmful for the institution because they lose that enrollment. And the more that I have looked at it, the more I see, wow, this, you know, moves even further back. And those same kinds of principles could apply to that area where, um, you know, connecting a student with someone that they know when they arrive on campus will have their back and connecting them with a future looking opportunity can make a difference. So I think, um, it has really encouraged me that that idea of elegant simplicity is really important, that whenever you find that you are in a situation where there are more factors than you can control um, and you're trying to manage all those factors, that you need to take a step back and say, maybe I'm approaching this problem, this puzzle from the wrong side. Maybe I'm trying to control things that really aren't within my control. And instead, I should focus on preparing, um, you know, the situation for students to be able to handle it or people to be able to confront those um, unforeseen circumstances in a different way. So you're building people from the inside out instead of the outside in. One of the things about these two principles, knowing that someone on campus has your back and having something meaningful to do at least once a week. These are things that are achievable at even under-resourced schools. One of the things that's difficult when a campus tour really wows you with amazing bells and whistles or you're looking for a school based on its ranking um, is that you know not, not every school can compete with those two particular metrics, but every school can adopt this model of, hey, students need to know somebody here has their back and they all need to get involved in something that's going to be personally meaningful to them and they're going to need to be encouraged to do that regularly. That's something that even under-resourced schools can start really encouraging both campus-wide and student by student. 
That's part of what I love about this idea is that it is accessible to everyone, right? I think in the past, it was perceived that only, um, you know, well-resourced institutions could go out and buy a major solution to retention, right? That that was the shortcut that they needed to take um, in order to move the dial. But um, I mean, this model really suggests that that's not the case at all, that, you know, even the least resourced um, uh, institution can make a difference in this area by building on their people and just encouraging a, a kind of culture which demonstrates the care that students need and the connection that uh, makes a difference. Um, you know, I think that's really, really powerful. And, and hopefully it's very hopeful for some institutions that have maybe looked at their um, retention and graduation rates and said, you know, there's nothing we can do because, you know, we can't come up with a really, you know, expensive technological solution to this. Um, to go back and say, well, that might be true, but what we can do is do our core business, do our core mission uh, in a more intentional way, right? We can really enable and empower everyone on our campus to think like a student success um, expert and to look for those opportunities to intervene and make a difference um, in a student's life and in their future. So, uh, you know, I agree. I think that's part of what's so powerful about a concept like this is that it is it's scalable, right? The smallest institution can do it and the largest institution can do it. Um, in fact, in some ways, maybe some of the small institutions have a little bit of an advantage um, in this way. Um, and being able to make things more personal and see their students in a different way, which is, I think it's, it's kind of a nice uh, way to even the playing field a little bit. I think in a lot of ways it re-empowers students and their families because it's dizzying trying to figure out what makes one school better than another. And as families struggling to come up with enough resources to send the student, they're saying, oh, well, I want to give them every advantage. Maybe we can sacrifice more in this way or that way to send them to this prestigious school. And for students, they may feel like a fish out of water at the school that they're touring, but they tell themselves, no, this is what you have to do. This is going to be the right place for your future. And asking students and their uh, support network, whether it's a grandmother or a aunt or a parent who's helping support them in their journey to say, hey, make sure that at this school, you're going to feel like someone has your back and really cares that you're here and that you're going to find something meaningful for you personally about being here. That really changes the game for a lot of families. It does. I think we have done students a great disservice by pushing them always towards, um, you know, what institution has the most or is the biggest or can give me the, you know, the most opportunities when really that is, um, you know, can be very deceiving. There is excellence and quality at many, many institutions of all different sizes and types. And I think the more important questions for students to ask is, what is the heart of this institution like? And what is it all about? Do Are the values of this institution in line with um, my values? So one of the things that we've emphasized a lot where I currently am are, um, you know, the university has a really strong tradition of service to others and teaching students to get involved in their neighborhood and in making a difference. And we want to send every student out in the world with the ability to make an impact. 
Well, that doesn't resonate with everybody, but it does really resonate with some students. And students need to be asking questions like that, like, what kind of person do I want this experience to help me be and to help me grow into um, while I'm there? You know, not do they have every club and activity? Because there's no way any student can participate in every club and activity, right? Do you, you know, do they have this, you know, giant sports program that I'll never participate in? Well, you know, does that really matter to you, right? Or do they have every single major? Well, again, you can't take every single major. The more important thing is to say, is the heart of this institution in, in alignment with my values and how I see myself moving forward into the future? Those are really important questions to ask. And again, to say, is this a match for me? Is this institution going to have the same type of interest in me as I'm going to have in the institution? I think that's it's really about making that great fit and that great match. That way you don't go somewhere that looks great on paper, but you know, it really doesn't matter to them if you were there or not. You want to go to a place where you do matter and where people are going to reach out to you and say, let's talk about your future and how we can get you where you want to go. One thing I hear from college and grad students on social media is that they feel either implicitly or explicitly discouraged from having any interest outside their course of study. And they feel embarrassed or discouraged from saying that they get great joy in making time every day to go jogging or that they do scrapbooking or that they're in a Dungeons and Dragons club. So they, they don't say that. I wonder how professors can shift it by respecting that students need to have something outside of school studies that is meaningful to them and open up spaces where there's respectful response to that. Like, hey, did, did you do something that mattered to you this weekend? Hey, or did you did you connect with somebody that you care about recently? Just as a, as a form of check-in and validation that you want your students to be doing this. Yeah. I mean, take an interest in them as a person, right? And that you want them to be balanced and successful, right? That we all know. I mean, those same professors and faculty, they have other areas of their lives that they are balancing their family or their hobbies or, you know, whatever that is. And I think taking that kind of an interest in uh, in someone is is huge, it makes a big difference when you ask them about things that matter to them and, and don't, you know, minimize those things and their importance. But I think you can also engage them in it by saying, Okay, why do you love that? What do you learn from that? How does that make you a better person, right? I think, again, we've focused so much that the only learning happens in the classroom setting. And I think especially in college and university where you are often living the experience, so much knowledge happens between classroom times, right? It happens by you know meeting new people and encouraging or encountering different points of view and, um, you know, stretching in some ways that you're not used to. And so you might find that like, okay, how does that, you know, hobby um, contribute to what you know about yourself and what your strengths are and what you do and what matters to you? That's why I often will talk to students and say, look, it's less about the major as you're thinking about going forward. Think instead about what are the skills that you love to use? And if you could use those skills eight or nine hours a day, that would bring you a lot of joy and a lot of success because you would be good at them, right? So, um, you know, maybe those skills cut across your academic learning, your social learning, your outside of the you know classroom experiences, the role that you play in your family. You know, maybe you're an amazing problem solver. Maybe you're great at, at conflict negotiation. Maybe you are really good at teaching people things. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but you need to connect those dots and not say, here's my academic life. 
here's my social life, you know, here are my hobbies, here's my family. These are all different boxes. No, you live in all of those spaces and the dots connect between all of those spaces. And you need to take some time to say, okay, how does what I'm doing here and why I love it teach me something about, you know, this other area over here. And when I connect the dots, who does that show me to be as a person? And how does that show me that I can follow a path that will lead me to, you know, a satisfying, successful life that has a lot of moments of joy in it? Finding something meaningful to do in your personal life is something within a student's control. They know what, what sounds interesting to them, what they may want to try, what they, what hobbies and interests they brought with them to school, but finding someone on campus who has your back may be outside the student's control. I'm thinking of students specifically who shared on social media that they love their major and they have no desire to change their major at all, but the advisor or the major professor who runs that department is incredibly hard for them to work with. Where else can you find someone on campus who who has your back if Basically, your, your major is working out okay, but the people who run that department just aren't emotionally or socially the right fit for you. Where else can you go to find a person who genuinely will have your back so you can stay and keep going? Yeah, I think students don't realize that um, campuses are full of those kinds of people, and they usually just have to make a small outreach in order to find that. So, you know, it might be that you, you just don't connect with your major advisor. That's okay. I mean, when I was in college, I probably had basically like three advisors, right? Because I would just find favorite professors that I had, and I would say, can I come and talk with you? Can I ask you your opinion on something? Can I you know, talk to you about life and maybe you could give me some suggestions on what I'm thinking about, or, you know, you could develop a minor in that or just take a, an occasional class. Um, or sometimes those faculty run, you know, clubs. I, I was involved, I had a faculty member I liked who ran the philosophy club. And so I went to philosophy club meetings, even though I wasn't a philosophy st- uh, major. Um, those those folks are everywhere. And if you find that you really resonate with a faculty member, even if they're in a completely different area, go and talk to them. Uh, you know, they, they probably could be interested in you just as a person as well, right? Especially, I think, at smaller institutions, they're so well set up to do that. Um, but then you also have, again, some of those formal structures. So go in and talk to career services, talk to the academic advising center, um, you know, look around for clubs or activities, go to the student activities office and, and talk with some of the staff or maybe graduate assistants or whoever is in there and say, I want to get involved in something, but I'm not sure what. Um, I feel like I need to be more connected on campus, but I don't know how to go about doing that. Um, So much of it is not, I think students worry about the way that they're going to phrase the question or what it is that they need to ask or that kind of thing. And so much of it is just going in with an attitude of saying, I'm enthusiastic. I want to be positive. I want to learn. I I need help. Can you point me in the right direction? And um, if you ask that a couple of times, you're going to run into a person who is willing to take you under their wing or give you some you know, great life advice or help you make those connections if you're not sure how to make them for yourself. And I think there is value in being brave and saying, I have this type of personality. I'm, I'll just use myself as an example. I'm an introvert and I do well with someone who speaks their mind very clearly. So I'm not trying to guess what they mean. And I don't care what subject they teach in, but I want to work with someone like that who has time to mentor someone like me because I'm kind of lonely here. And I actually got advice on, oh, you, you want to go talk to this person <laughs> because I just outed myself. Like here's, 
here's my strengths and weaknesses and what what I'm looking for. Who who could step into that role? Sometimes just being very brave about why you're stuck can help someone suggest the right match for you. Yeah, the, I mean that's the key is that at some point you probably are going to need to raise your hand, right? You don't it doesn't have to be in front of a whole big group, right? There are a lot of, you know, more introverted students and you know, honestly, if it's encouraging, I'd share there are a lot of introverted faculty and staff. And so you're not alone out there if you feel like, wow, this is really hard for me to step forward and say I I want to make more connections or I want more help. It's just that, you know, maybe instead of doing it in that sort of rah-rah orientation icebreaker way, you know, you want to do it in that quiet one-on-one conversation with somebody who you feel like is really listening to you. And those people exist on college campuses and they they want to help. And so, you know, look for them, find other people that you think maybe are more that way too. They're more, you know, a little more soft-spoken in the way that they do things and, you know, share with them that you're like, you know, hey, I... I really want to be more engaged and more involved, or I, you know, I found this particular topic really interesting, but I don't know how to pursue this, or whatever it is, and see if they will, you know, take that first step in pointing you in the right direction, or say, you know, is there somebody you think I should connect with? Um, those those people are definitely out there, and you don't have to be the person that you know again stands up in front of the whole class to share your you know deep inner feelings in order to um, connect with a, a kindred spirit somewhere on campus. Those people are there that feel the way that you do about certain things or value the same kinds of things you do. And it might just take you a little time and a few you know questions to identify the right people who will have your back and be that kind of encouragement that you need. What do you hope listeners will take away from this today? I think again, I, you know, I want to go to that learner's mindset for students. If that's if if you're a student who's listening, I would say be open and ready to learn. Be, realize that the world is a lot bigger than maybe you've seen it in high school, and and be okay with that. The fact that there are multiple paths towards success, and that you can be open to pursuing them. That it's okay to make some mistakes as long as you have you know a little bit of network, you know, a little bit of backup um, to help you kind of process those mistakes. And then I think to the, you know, the professionals that are uh, listening, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our busyness, in our email and our projects and that kind of thing. But realizing that what called us here in the first place was making a difference in the lives of others and that we have the opportunity to do that every day in very small ways, but that those ways are the secret, right? That's the secret sauce is that um, the things that we always wanted to do in terms of reaching out to students and helping them to achieve their potential actually are the right things to do. Um, and we can get distracted in that. And, you know, again, sometimes look for shortcuts, but um, going back to that sense of, you know, the elegant thing that was on our heart to do all along, that's actually where success comes from. And I think if we can practice that, um, we will be able to make a big impact on our current students and the future of where our students are headed. And finally, what gives you hope? I do have a lot of hope. I think um, that individual people can make a difference. I feel like we plant seeds every day that grow into better things. Um, and I see this enormous potential that our students have, and we we need to cultivate that. We need to take advantage of that. Um, we need to, you know, not get caught up in um, all the noise, but to continually go back and say, you know, not only what is it that matters, but why are we doing what we do? And if we continue to ask ourselves the great questions about, you know, what is our purpose behind what we're doing, and how 
can we, if we're really successful, what will it look like in the future? Um, it will make a difference. And even if you don't see it immediately in the numbers, those individual people are the ones that matter and they will come back to you and thank you for the difference that you make. Aaron Vasco, thank you so much for being here today and talking to us about why we might have gotten student success completely backwards and giving us two key things we can do to turn that around. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.